0: Amen. Amen. You can be seated, man. Welcome in to our 1045 service, uh, whether you are joining us in person or online. Um, and we are glad to have you here. Uh, if you're wondering where some folks are, we've got 40 people that are down in Aniston right now. Uh, Joseph, our worship uh, worship pastor, our student pastor, uh, is down there with them. Uh, They are having a great time. Uh, I received a text message. Actually, all of our pastors received a text message at true youth pastor hours at 1 a.m., which, of course, I read at like 5 a.m. when I got up. Uh, at 1 a.m., he sends a text message rejoicing that we've had two that have made decisions for Christ while we're down there. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so super pumped about that. And, and he even left me hanging. He was like, and there's more. I just, I'll tell you later. So, you know, like every good Netflix series, like, well, 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 and you have to, you know, binge the next episode. Like that—that's what he did. So he left me, left me hanging there. But we are excited to hear that things are going well there in Aniston at Camp Lee, and uh, we are. But we are excited that you are here uh, today. We are transitioning in our sermon series. Uh, we have been in the life of David. Uh, We are transitioning uh, to the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, we are going to spend our entire summer on the Mount. So that is the title of our next series. Uh, We will be beginning that. And so for the next nine weeks, we are going to dive in to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. From a very young age, uh, my story is very unique. Most pastors that I know... Didn't realize that they were going to be a pastor uh, until much later on in their life. Some of them into their adulthood. Some of them had jobs, and then God called them uh, into the ministry Uh, from. But from a very, very young age, uh, for whatever reason, uh, I had my dad, who was a pastor. He was not a. He was not a lead pastor. He was a youth pastor uh, at the time. I had my dad. My grandfather had had been served as a brief ten as a. Uh, stint as a pastor. Um, But I always said that when people asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I said like, I want to be a mighty man of God and a preacher. That's the vernacular I used. I don't know why. You're not like, like, I I know that's some, you know, people say things like, like Cooper right now. He like, he's always said that he wants to grow up to be a pastor. My middle kid has decided that he wants to be a spy, but he'll go to his brother's church uh, which is totally on par with Hudson, um, but I, I used to always say I want to be a mighty man of God and a, and a preacher, and it kind of set my path growing up. Uh, and and Dad gave me the opportunity to speak. I remember speaking on the radio and a little small little sermonette that I did, and I remember uh, speaking to youth, and I remember you know a lot of those kind of things growing up. Uh, and as I knew that that God was calling me to that. Uh, I can think of amazing men of God that really sowed into my life. Messages that they would preach that just set me on the right track, I guess you could say. Men like Joel Carlisle, men like uh, Lon Ostriski, my dad, men like uh, Roy Hill and Dusty McLemore, people that God had provided in my life uh, to, to help to nurture and to foster that. When I would go into my individual studies in college, there were men that I really loved hearing how they approached Scripture, right? And so there's like the contemporary ones, like there's Chan and David Plaid and John Piper, some of those guys, Matt Chandler, some of those kind of guys I love. Those are like current podcast sermons that I listen to today. There's There's a little bit older, if you've got a little bit of age on you, you know names like... Charles Stanley, Billy Graham, Adrian, everybody knows Billy Graham, but Adrian Rogers, those D.L. Moody, those types of people. Uh, You really go back, and I'll never forget the time that I preached in a student ministry. Now, you want to talk about like what kind of student pastor I was? Um, I preached a spinoff of Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, you want to talk about like turn or burn like fire and brimstone, right? Like that was serious. But Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon, John Wesley, man, I remember reading all of those things. But at one point in my life, I was very, very convicted. I was very convicted because I think about all of the illustrations that I've heard, all of the the different approaches to God's Word and teachings and and all of those kind of things. And I started thinking to myself, but how much time have I spent with, with Jesus, with His Word for myself? How much of what God is showing me is from someone else or is spoken directly through His Word? I hope you understand that a sermon is simply a man, fallible man, by the way, that has been in God's Word, hopefully prayerfully, a good sermon. They've been in God's Word. It has been filtered through their own digestion, right? Like, this is what I think the Scripture is saying. This is what it means to me. This is what it means in context. And this is how we apply it, all of those things. And then it is the digested material is back, given back to you in a way that you can understand. But I think about it like this. What if uh, there was... A new restaurant opened, which, by the way, a restaurant opened on Sundays. Um, officially, I admire all of them for, for staying closed on Sundays. Uh, unofficially, I just feel like we would really <laughs> they would have plenty of business. Uh, but uh, if there was a new restaurant coming to Elkmont, and it was predicated on predigested food. Like, hey, we've got predigested food. Come and eat as much as you want. You don't even have to chew. You don't even need teeth. Right? Pre-digested food, right? Now we can imagine about how that would go, right? But a lot of us, we rely on that to grow spiritually. Predigested food is our source of nourishment. And what's so cool is we don't have to go outside of God's word to some of these men, though godly men, they're fallible. They make mistakes. I hope you know, I hope you're not relying on me for all of your spiritual nourishment because you have taken your ducks to a poor pond. But in Scripture, we have sermons by Jesus himself. And what makes those sermons different from anybody else? I am not authoritative in what I share. My thoughts and my stories. And my object lessons, they are not authoritative. I know they're cool. Like I get, no, I'm just kidding. I, but they're not authoritative. However, John 1 tells us that the Word became flesh and he dwelt among us. Well, we have on the Sermon on the Mount, and Matthew, actually Matthew, the entire book of Matthew, is really outlined by five messages that Jesus preaches. The longest is the Sermon on the Mount. It goes for three chapters, Matthew 5 through 7. But we have the Word of God writing commentary and preaching on the Word of God. We've got the Word of God squared. In our life. Like we have that in scripture. And I think about all the times that I have really poured into other messages. Like man I loved how he brought that out in the light. This is Jesus talking about God's word. That's what a sermon is right. And so Jesus has spent time with God's word. He has spent time in the Old Testament. He is using the law. He is using the, 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 the scripture that they had at that time. And he is writing a sermon on that material. It's literally the Word from the Word. What a beautiful thing. Why is it that we don't spend more of our time there? Francis Schaeffer says, Man is examined closely enough to grasp the atom, yet has failed to understand the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. Think about how meticulously... We have to look at something to see the atom, to see a collection and a relationship of, of protons, neutrons, and electrons, and how the electrons uh, rotate in a circle orbit around a nucleus, and, and, and all of the intricacy that we have in an atom Yet right in front of our face is the Son of God, the Word made flesh, that is preaching on the living Word, and we fail to study it. And so that's the heart that drives this series. Uh, Obviously, Jesus would have had three points in his message They would probably be alliterated or arranged in some cute way that you could remember. And so if he did that, his three points might look something like Matthew chapter 5, which is where he teaches on true righteousness. This is what it looks like to live righteously in the kingdom of God. These are principles of the kingdom of God that are outlined in Matthew 5, deals with the area of righteousness. Uh, secondly, uh, Matthew chapter 6 deals with the issue of true worship. What does it look like? You've got to think about the people in this day. They had seen people that they thought to be righteous. The, 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 the uh, Pharisees, the Sadducees, uh, the high priests. These were all righteous people. but Jesus would teach something completely different in the kingdom. True worship. Worship had become liturgy. It had become uh, a series of sacrifices. It had become a procedure. Jesus lays out in Matthew chapter 6, all of these things are incomplete if you don't factor in me. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus talks about true judgment. True judgment. What does it look like to see people in their sin? How do we respond to sin? How has Jesus or how has God responded to us? This is letters in red, y'all. And it bears our understanding and it bears our time. And so the first thing that we see is the context. Let's look at Matthew 5, beginning in verse 1, in the context that it was written. Seeing the crowds. Jesus went up to the mountain, and when he had sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying. Now, we need to understand when this was written. This was written, prim- this was written in the Galilean ministry of Jesus. If you remember, if you were here when we did the study through Mark, this was the first eight chapters of the book of Mark. This is early in Jesus' ministry. And there were three different types of people that were around Jesus at this time. Jesus was performing miracles. Jesus was teaching in a way that they had never heard before. And Jesus was causing a scene. People came from all over to see and to hear Jesus. They wanted their mamas and them healed. right? They wanted to see people cast out demons. They wanted the free fish and chips. But there were three categories of people. The first category were the apostles. They were the twelve. They were the closest innermost circle. And there are things that Jesus says directly to them. Then there was an outer circle of disciples. These are those people that followed Jesus passionately, that desired to serve Jesus and kingdom agenda. They were the disciples. They weren't part of the twelve, but they were committed followers of Jesus. And then there was the crowds. And the crowds were there for the show. The crowds were there to see things they'd never seen before. They were there for the spectacle. What it tells us is seeing the crowds of people, seeing all these people that are just around to see what cool thing Jesus is going to do next, he went up on a mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. We've got to understand the Sermon on the Mount is not written to the lost. It's written to believers. It's written to his followers. And it's written to receive principles on how the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is different than the kingdom of the world. Why do we need that perspective? Because we live in the kingdom of the world every day. We know what it's like to live for the kingdom of the world. We know what power looks like in this world. We know what popularity looks like in this world. We know what success looks like in this world we don't have to be taught about the kingdom of the world the kingdom of man what we need is the perspective of heaven and so he's writing to his he he's, he's teaching his disciples in this in this raised area this is believed to be matter of fact one of my friends great friends some of you know her katie white is actually right now in israel like seeing these things firsthand super jealous uh, and other people in this room, uh, you know, that may or may not be to my left on the front row, I go there like all the time for work. Like, I mean, it's super jealous. But if you go to Israel, like I have not been, uh, what you know, they they have the Mount of Beatitudes, which is the lowest part of the Jordan Plain uh, plateau. Uh, it's this raised area, and it's right off the northern shore of Lake of the Lake of the Sea of Galilee. And so, as you're And on the shore looking up, it looks like a mountain. It's it's a hill. But Jesus went up to speak directly to his disciples. He said a lot of things to the crowds, but this was intended for his followers. And so the Sermon on the Mount was delivered to his his disciples. Not necessarily the twelve, probably most specifically to the twelve, but not necessarily just the twelve. Um, And Jesus is identifying to them what his followers will look like, what being his follower will entail. Adrian Rogers says that many of us, are willing to take the Sermon on the Mount as a flag to sail under. We are members of God's kingdom, right? Like, here's our flag, like a a Jolly Roger would would denote if it's a pirate, or some country's flag would denote what, what country they're from, right? Many of us are willing to sail under the flag of the Sermon on the Mount, but that's not what the Sermon on the Mount is. It's not a flag. It's a rudder. He said, many of us will, will be, uh, may, let me just read it because he said it, uh, many are willing to take the Sermon on the Mount as a flag to sail under, but few will use it as a rudder by which to steer. A rudder is a very, very small part of a boat, but it is very, very important to go the direction that's needed to go. You can have The banner of Christ, all you want. But if your boat is headed in an opposite direction of Jesus, it doesn't matter what your sail says, you're not in that, you're not for the kingdom. How do I steer this? What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? Don't call yourself a Christian, a follower of Jesus. If you're not looking like Jesus, at some point, that has to mean something. At some point in our life, we have to do things that Jesus did. We have to see things the way Jesus saw them. If, he doesn't, if Jesus has made no practical difference in your life, my friend, you are riding under a banner, and you are not using the rudder. The Sermon on the Mount is meant to be a rudder. It's very practical. This is what followers of me will look like. The first part of that that we'll talk about today is the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes is as is probably the most famous part of the Sermon on the Mount. Many of you have heard them, have read them. Uh, many of you might have had someone really cute say that the Beatitudes are the attitudes that we are to be. Now, not only is that bad grammar, it's also really bad hermeneutics. Okay, that's not what they are not attitudes that we need to be. All right, Beatitudes is a translation of a word from Latin meaning blessed. By the way, do y'all know the difference between the word blessed and blessed? Do you know the difference? Blessed is what we say, right, when we're talking about the happiness that God provides. And blessed is what we say when somebody's trying to be sharp. They mean the exact same thing, all right? Mean the exact same thing. Blessed, blessed is just how you want to say it, right? Tomato, tomato, all right? But It means blessed. So when we say the Beatitudes, we are literally saying the blessed or the blessedness, right? So the blessed people, and that's how every single Beatitude begins, right? So they're not attitudes that we need to be. I guess you can be those attitudes. That's fine if that's how you're, that's whatever. But they literally mean blessed. When we talk about happiness. We're not talking about temporary emotional happiness. Those in Jesus' day would not have understood this as an emotional happiness, right? Because one phone call, one event can change you from a very happy state to a very sad state. But the happiness that he's talking about is contentment. It's a spiritual happiness it is a happiness that stands the test of time it's a a peace that passes all understanding because if we understand it as happy what we as as we like to think of it we're going to be really confused when he says things like happy are the poor and happy are the people that cry and happy are the hungry and the thirsty right because those aren't associated with happiness in our culture What Jesus says is blessed, right? Spiritually happy, contented are the people that are these things. And so let's look first at the contrite. The contrite in Matthew chapter 5 verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. God, may we get our cues from you. Jesus, you have spoken on your own kingdom. May we not bring our own agendas to the table. May we hear it as you have intended. And may our life look like people who are following your commands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Right off the bat, we look at these beatitudes and we immediately see a paradox. It's almost like it's saying happy is the person who does the opposite of things that are happy. Right? There's a, there's a lot of that. What Jesus, these people had a very good understanding of what they thought to be blessed. The men that dress up in fine fancy clothing and offer animals and uh, read the law in their King James format. And they, all of the things that they do, those are the people that are holy. Those are the people that are happy. Those are the people that we need to seek to be. And Jesus turns everything on its head. So I wish we could just have the perspective of those people. Not the perspective of us people that know these things, but if we could have the perspective of that day, what he was saying was earth-shattering for them. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now that doesn't mean blessed are those who are depressed, who have a poor self-image, who don't have a vitality of life that's not what he's saying. What he's saying when he means what he means by blessed are the poor in spirit are blessed are those who as it relates to spiritual life are completely and totally humble. Blessed are the people that recognize that in the realm of spirituality we are all completely and totally Bankrupt. Why? Because God is perfect. For those of us in this room, what's very clear is that we are not. So, we can't comment on perfection. We got nothing to bring to that table. And so, for us, blessed are the poor. In spirit. What we see in the Beatitudes is an outline of the entire um, Sermon on the Mount. It makes an outline for the entire Sermon on the Mount, but actually, in so doing, Jesus is describing the kingdom. What he's actually doing is outlining the entire New Testament. This is what the kingdom of God looks like in his followers. And these principles are easy to find when you look at Paul's writings, when you look at the general letters, when you look at the end times, when you look at uh, the church, when you look at the issues that were going on, when you look at the miracles. That all of these things are easy to place in these, in these different boxes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What Jesus is describing in the Beatitudes is a chain. And each link of the chain is vital to create a chain. You don't have one link of a chain and call it a chain. You call it a link. But when you begin linking the links together, then you have a chain. And what we see here is what Jesus is building in his kingdom. The first thing is blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who recognize the fact that they have nothing to bring to the table because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those people that are prancing about Peacocking around in their fancy suits Acting like they ain't got no sin Those people don't get the kingdom of heaven It's those people that recognize That they are in desperate need of a savior They're the ones that get the first link They're the ones that get the kingdom of heaven They're the ones who recognize their dependence On God to meet their needs It's not about you anymore in God's kingdom, in man's kingdom, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get to it, get to work, provide for yourself. In God's kingdom, he has provided everything that we need. And he says, blessed are those who mourn. Happy are those who cry. That could not seem more opposite. And it's not just talking about blessed are those who you know, are mourning the loss of a loved one or or anything like that. What he's speaking specifically of is if you are going to be in this kingdom, to be that, you must mourn. What are we mourning? We're mourning the first link. We're mourning that we are completely without hope, without Jesus. And we mourn our sin. The Bible tells us that godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. The link in the chain is not just coming up to this altar and crying about your sin, but giving it to God. If you're really dependent on him, you are going to lay it down and you will never pick it up again. You will mourn your brokenness. It's what we see in in Psalm chapter 51 with David. That's a man who's mourning his brokenness. God, without you, I'm nothing. I'm sunk. It's another link in the chain. But then what does he say? Blessed are the meek. Now, I did this in the first service, and nobody knew what I was talking about. I, I never got meekness defined for me, really, as a kid growing up. The only thing that anybody ever told me about meekness is meekness is not... Really? Not y'all Neither. Meekness is not weakness. Anybody ever heard that? Meekness is not weakness? All right, I guess that's a lick skillet thing. Uh, meekness is not weakness, right? That's the only thing anybody would ever tell me, like just because you're meek doesn't mean you're weak, right? And, and I never really understood what that meant, but actually, meekness means strength under control. Here's the example. Did Jesus have every opportunity and every authority to put an end to his crucifixion? Absolutely. But in that moment, as a servant, he became meek and mild. And as a lamb was led to a slaughter, he opened not his mouth. Strength under control did you know that you will not find in scripture anywhere that tells you you need to stand up for yourself that you need to fight your own battles that you need to be yet you need if somebody gets you you need to get them you're not going to find that in scripture this idea of having to advocate for herself. Now listen, y'all, when I'm talking about, when I'm talking about things that you could literally be devaluing as your worth as a human being, abuse and the, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when we get our little feelings hurt, my daughter F's are Ps. When we get our little feelings hurt, meekness is recognizing that your world isn't over. And furthermore. It's not wishing that whoever did that to you would get what they got coming to them. Meekness is peace. Meekness is recognizing I am in utter dependence on God. I am mourning who I am without Christ, I am mourning my brokenness and my sin. And I am allowing God to fight my battles. The greatest example of meekness, one salvation for all of us. When we are busy fighting our own battles, when we are busy taking up for ourselves, you know whose cause we are not championing? The cause of Christ. And so we'll look at a world that offends us And we'll say, how dare you believe that? How dare you act that way? How dare you parade yourself like that? How dare you make flags for this? How dare you champion this as a cause? I can't believe you are doing that. That church is not meekness. That is not God's calling for his bride. It's meekness. We know the truth. In love, we would rather see someone restored than for ourselves to be right. Right? Jesus took it. He took my sin and he took your sin. It's another link in the chain. These are the followers of Christ. This is what this will look like in the life of believers. Meekness produces peace. It's proof of true greatness of soul. It comes from a heart too great to be moved by little insults. I didn't get any amens. I'm going to read it again. Meekness produces peace. It is proof of true greatness of soul. It comes from a heart too great to be moved by little insults. We live in such an offended culture, y'all. The church shouldn't be that way. Let the world be offended. Our message is reconciliation. Because what does Jesus do? What does God do? He fights our battles. The same Jesus who would meekly lay down his life. In Philippians 2, Paul says that every knee would bow in heaven and earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's about God's glory, not our own. Let the Lord fight your battles. But these are the contrite. These are the people that understand that their worth, their value is not found in this world. They are committed. Thirdly and finally, they are committed. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful. For they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see mercy. God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. God, may this be true of your people. May this be true of those who bear the name Jesus. In this church and in all other places. Amen. Amen. Hunger and thirst, again, if we're talking about happiness, people that have real issues with hunger and thirst, it would not be a convincing commercial if Samaritan's Purse gets on and starts parading all these kids that are super-duper happy because they are hung- they have real hunger and real thirst. They're dying of starvation, right? That's... That's, that's unhappiness for those that are hungering and thirsting. But yet Jesus says, blessed, happy are those, spiritually contented are those who hunger and thirst for true righteousness. For true righteousness, these people will be satisfied. Just because God hasn't called us to stand up for ourselves and fight every." every person who would come against us does not mean that we don't hunger for the world to be right with him. It doesn't mean that we don't have that desire but that desire doesn't come from a place of anger or pride or resentment. It comes from a place of mercy. God have mercy on this world. You have mercy on me. I desire, what did Jesus say? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus sought righteousness on earth. We should seek that. But don't forget the other links of the chain in doing it. Because true righteousness understands just how unrighteous we really are. Because more than being discontent of the unrighteousness of somebody else, we should be bothered by the unrighteousness in our own heart. And sin sometimes can be the easiest thing to see in others, but it can be the hardest thing to see in ourselves. True people, true kingdom followers, in their meekness, in their humility, in their service of others, see that. Blessed are the merciful. Mercy is the heart of our king. And if mercy is the heart of our king, then mercy should be the only heart of everyone in his kingdom. Think about what you have been forgiven and then dare to be angry at what someone has done for you, done against you. Think about what Christ has done for you and then try to mean tweet what someone who disagrees with you says. Blessed are those who show mercy. You know why? They'll receive mercy. We see this in the parable of the unforgiving servant. Right, The master who he owes a great, great debt to forgives him of all charges. So then, in his joy, he goes and finds the guy that owes him a few dollars. And he says, give it back. And he's like, I ain't got it. And he says, well, you're going to jail, big boy. You know, the king turns around and says, hey, bring me that guy back. Throw him in jail. He will not get out until he's paid the last penny. Those who have received mercy are merciful by our nature. Those that are not have not received mercy. It's the fruit of a disciple of Jesus, it's no accident that it, it it is done with that cause and effect. The second thing he says, the third thing he says is, "Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God." They'll see God. Friday Night Lights is a series that I watch. Um, I'm sure if you've ever played football before in your life, you've probably seen the series on Netflix. I'm not endorsing it. But there's a, there's a saying, right? Y'all know the saying, before they go out to play, what is it? Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. I'm glad you looked that up, because we were wrong on that first ever. That's good. Um, Blessed are those who are pure of heart. What is, what is the coach trying to communicate? He's trying to get all of his team on the same page. One single purpose. Now, there's many ways to apply that one single purpose. It doesn't look the same for a safety as it does a a defensive end. It doesn't look the same for a quarterback as it does a running back or a defensive lineman to an offensive lineman. It doesn't look the same. The application is very different, but the clear purpose is victory. For us as children of God, those who are pure of heart are those who are undivided in their purpose. I don't know if there's one that we transgress more. Blessed are the pure in heart. Those that know the purpose of their life and they live according to those purposes. They steer their life, not according to their own self, but the links in the chain dictate. They're poor in spirit. Right? They're they're mourning their sin. They're meek. They've received Mercy, they're hungering, hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And so what becomes their motivation for living? What becomes their purpose? To see God do the absolute maximum that he can do in their lives so that he can, they can see the absolute maximum in the lives of someone else. That is our purpose. Clear eyes, full hearts. You know what Paul says to the church of Corinth? They got a lot of issues. They had a lot of issues. You know what he says to the church of Corinth? You're not divided in your, You're not restricted in our teaching. You're restricted in your own affections. You don't know why it's hard for you to live the life that God intends for you? Because you are restricted in your own affections. You got one foot in the world and one foot in heaven. That's not true of a follower of the kingdom of God. And then finally, blessed are the peacemakers. Peacemakers are not people who lord power, right? I would argue that when you bring in peacemakers in the military, you bring in people to keep the peace. I would argue you're not creating peace fact, you're stirring up a whole lot of anxiety, and in many ways, the opposite of peace. Peace is not something that comes from a position of authority. It's not from people who lord power. It comes from people who love people. That's where peace comes from. These are letters in red, and Jesus is talking a big game. But you know what's great about the benefit of hindsight? These people that are hearing this for the first time don't know what we know. Because Jesus was our peacemaker. Those who were once far off, hostile in our thinking, following according to the powers of the world of this air, he has brought near By the blood of Jesus. Jesus made peace for us. So, we are about the peace of others. We want to see them restored. God does all this on the front end. The the links of the chain bring us to making ultimate peace between people And God, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. They are taking their cues from the Son of God, making peace. And does this define your life? Or is there conviction there? God has called us to live not under the banner, flying the flag of Christian if we are not willing to steer with the rudder of his teaching. To do that is to be a hypocrite. And to do that is to actually drive a wedge between peace between God and others. This Christian walk, I know it's simplistic, I know it's cliche, but it ain't about us. You don't have to look anywhere but my own righteousness to know that it ain't about me. Would we lean into that? Would we fulfill the purpose that God has for us? That's where we find true contentment. And we don't find it anywhere else. You will not be content. As a follower of Christ, you will not be content until you are living these purposes. I would argue that if you are not a child of God, you will not be content until you are living according to these purposes. Because this is the only thing that's big enough. It's the only thing that's big enough to actually meet our need, to actually be bigger than our own selfish, dumb, fickle selves. Would you live for his kingdom agenda? With every head bow and eye closed. Listen, if you're here today... God loves you. God has identified for us priorities of His kingdom. Why? Because they're the priorities of our King. Man, He served us. He was poor in spirit. He came in the form of a servant. He mourned our brokenness. The disconnect between us and God. And he reconciled it. In his meekness, he submitted himself even to the death of the cross. So that he would make a way for us to hunger and thirst for him. Not our own lives. He showed us mercy so that we could show mercy. He perfected purity for us, achieved perfection for us in this life so that we could be pure in the eyes of God. And he made peace for me. And if you would respond to him, he's made peace for you as well. If you're here today and you have never... Surrendered your life to Christ. Jesus was talking to his disciples. If You are not a disciple of Christ. You are not a follower of Jesus. This is not your marching orders. This is not how you have laid out and orchestrated your life. I would call you to the feet of Jesus today. Receive from him his forgiveness. Cast your sin upon him, your your failures, your frailty, your life. Surrender it to him and receive the gift of forgiveness and mercy. And let him restore you. If you're here and you need to make that decision, I'll be here at the front. Would love to talk to you. If you need to do business with the Lord, this altar is going to be open. If you have any other decision, we've got counselors. Decision counselors that would love to meet with you. You just move as the Spirit leads in this time of invitation. Hey, take your cue from Him in this moment. Do whatever it is that He's calling you to do. Father, have your will and way in our hearts and in this moment. We love you. We thank you for the drawing, the wooing of your Holy Spirit. May be forever changed by it. May we respond to it now in Jesus' name.